1: Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Allen. On the show today, we have comedian and actor Fred Stoller. That's right. Fred is a fun and fantastic, a beautiful human being, and he has been a part of so many iconic projects in films, television shows, animation, the list goes on and on. And we cover all of that. Most people know him from Dumb and Dumber, get off the phone, but there is so much more to him than that. He is just a fun and beautiful human being, as I mentioned, and I think you're really going to love this episode. We cover a lot from what it takes to get started in the industry, what it was like for him in the 80s, in the comedy boom, hanging out at the Comedy Cellar, and really being influenced by some amazing people, finding your voice, all of that and much more on today's episode. Again, thanks for joining in and enjoy the show. Idly hey! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Prepare to be astonished with Brett Allen. Dude, we are so going to party. <laughs> A pop culture podcast. <gasps> oh! At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Great
0: Odin's Raven.
1: Join in weekly as Brett interviews your favorite celebrities from film, television, television sports, music, and much more. Plus, you never know who will stop by. The mystic portal Away. Now here is your host, Brett Allen. Brett Stoller. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thank you for having me. If you are just now tuning in or you fast forwarded through the intro, we are talking to actor and comedian Fred Stoller. And my gosh, he and he, he's right in front of me. You just have such a large, iconic history library of work. And there are so many things and so many questions that I have. But I think the first question I would start out with is growing up is this something that you had an interest in early on acting and comedy and that sort of thing or did it come later on in life
0: Well I'm an old guy so growing up in the 70s there weren't really comedy nerds comedians were like old guys like Buddy Hackett and you know uh you know Don Rickles so I I didn't really have a Jones to be a comedian and the story I tell, I was very depressed and shy and I knew the real world wasn't for me. I didn't know how am I going to fit into the real world, but I'm not going to be a dentist or an architect and I was anything but funny, but what, and I, I would see character actors on TV and movies like the Bob Newhart show and Barney Miller. This is, and, and I would, I would gravitate to the weird character actors, but I didn't know how you did that. Like I said, it's not like today where you have YouTube and you have behind the scenes on DVDs and entertainment, you know, behind the scenes where you could see paths. So then when I was uh, 17, I think my older sister took me to a comedy club in Brooklyn. That's where I'm from. I saw Richard Lewis and Billy Crystal before they made it. So I wasn't really exposed to comedians. And someone explained, one of my sister's friends, there's a place in New York called The Improvisation. And that's where Jimmy Walker, Freddie Prinze, they did their act. Then they got on The Tonight Show and then they got on a sitcom. I went, that's how you get on sitcoms. And even though I had (laughs) no love of passion of stand-up comedies or never was told I was funny, I thought all I had to do is do it twice. I would do it at the improv, get on The <laughs> Tonight Show, and then be in a sitcom. So that didn't happen. But I eventually, by accident, hung out at comedy clubs at the improv and developed an act because I was so shy. I couldn't look at the audience. I, would, I was a depressed guy doing stuff my mother would say. And so I kind of fell into the stand-up comedy boom of the 80s. And made a marginal living and thought I would get discovered. And eventually I had to come to L.A.
1: What a story. And I like your honesty and the fact that a lot of people who do this now, I hear, you know, they have this idea of they go on like The Tonight Show or Jimmy Fallon now do like a five minute set. And then like the phone's going to ring <laughs> the next day. And people are going to just want you to be a part of something. But that's definitely not the case, right, as far as what you've just shared. Like, it's been a long, hard road for you to get where you are. Well,
0: I thought you were going to say, you know, in my day, it used to be, well, there were a lot that made it from The Tonight Show. Um, Drew Carey was one of the last ones because then it got all watered down. There were all these shows, but it's kind of, but then there was a young comedian specials. People made it from that, but now it's kind of funny. There's people who quote unquote make it. I don't know where they made it from. I think a lot <laughs> I think Joe Rogan's podcast or the road, but it used to be like sort of a path you understood. Oh, I see how this guy made it. Sam Kennison or whatever. So it's very, yeah, it's just all over the place.
1: Well, it's funny because I know that you do these lives sometimes on Instagrams and you talk to people and people ask you questions. And I imagine a question that you probably get often is, how can I be a better this or how can I do that? And there's really not a specific path for for just everybody, right? It's different.
0: Yes, people say, how can I be an actor? How can I do this? When, yes, there is, the advice they always give is there is no path. So don't be prey to uh, gurus or seminars or acting coaches or managers that prey on your vulnerability and say, there this is the path. Yes my my only thing I would say is don't be a permanent student it's okay to take an acting class well pre-pandemic we'll see what happens is to share and be with people at your level and you share information like you can't do a comedy class to learn to do stand up but it might be good to be with other people starting out. Oh, there's an open mic there or this. It's just you got to be in the trenches of whatever you're doing and you can't dabble.
1: This career that you have is not for the faint at heart, right? It's not just to kind of like pick and choose and decide why I might nickel and dime this or nickel and dime that. It's interesting you mentioned comedy classes because I hear pros and cons to both. But the thread that I hear from a lot of people is it kind of helps you just get to the microphone and sort of learn etiquette and things. But like you said, you have to go out and do this. Were your parents supportive of your... Oh, no, no. um, It did. My mother freaked out. I quit college to
0: hang out at the comedy clubs. And she rightfully, it made no sense because like I said, her generation comedians were like vaudeville and, you know, Catskills and I oh, wow. was very, very depressed. It made no sense. I'm going to be a comedian. It's like if my cat told me that. It's just, <laughs> but she was not supportive. She she finally started being quote unquote proud when other people said they saw me on something like the retirement community. They saw me on the nanny. So it was, <laughs> it was again, now comedy, and I keep saying pre-pandemic, is almost a path like this colleges have improv classes so it's more in the lexicon that's the word the mindset of people it's like in in la it's almost more uncommon that you're not a comedian because people try it in some way so yes it, it made no sense to
1: them that's crazy and that story seems all too familiar Now you're moving along in your part of this comedy boom in the 80s i'm 46 so i'm i'm somewhat familiar just historically of what that looked like. And you're hanging out at the comedy clubs and you're doing all these things. Did you have something else that you were doing simultaneously, like a normal job, so to speak? Or did you just kind of throw it all in? And then at what point did you decide you were going to just pursue this 100% and not dabble as you? So 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 once I
0: passed auditions at the improv, I just would hang out there. You'd hang out and you'd get on at first, like every three weeks if you were lucky. I would follow Gilbert Gottfried, you know, people like that were there. Um, and then, well, what happened is my first year or so, I was still living at home, which freaked my mother out more <clears throat> that I would take <laughs> the, train, the D train to the improv Hell's Kitchen and come home late. She couldn't sleep. She thought I'd get murdered. So I was just living on what they had cap there. If you did get on, you'd get like Eight bucks or whatever, and I'd eat pizza, and and then in 1980 I heard about an apartment for rent in Manhattan only 130 a month, but you had to share the bathroom and shower in the hall. But it got me into the city. I I had for like a little bit an odd job, like handing out tickets for CBS shows for pilots so they test them out. Got it. So, So I did that for about a year, and then I got unemployment. And then when the comedy boom started with only $130 a month rent, I was able to, um, you know, there were $50 gigs in New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut, bars, discos, some comedy clubs popped up, weekend jobs. So we were in this false comfort zone where we were making a living, you know, and I thought it would take me to the next level and I'd get discovered, but it didn't. So, So luckily I only had like uh, the CBS job handing out tickets and some Harris poll job with surveys. But I, I was lucky in that th- I never really had to do things like you saw in the Pete Holmes show of
1: crashing. You know,
0: what's it called? Yes. But the where he had to get the crowds to see him by handing out
1: the fly, barking and stuff like barking. that on the I corner. Have yeah. to do that. That's good. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, it's funny because I've talked to some people who had some connection to that show and as a sidebar, it was very honest and very truthful as far as being able to get past at a comedy club was a big deal yes. uh, for Esty to pass you at the comedy cellar or to have somebody say, OK, you can do this regularly. To be honest, you seem to have these natural comedic instincts where when you're in things, whether it's acting or just whatever the case might be. Is that something I would love to hear your opinion on this, Fred, that you either have it or you don't? it's like natural or something that you can learn or can be taught per se.
0: I was sort of a snob in a way where when I would hang out, when you meet someone, you could tell if they're not funny, even without their material. There were some people, but there's some people that, worked it, worked it, worked it, and surprised me. I think if you're not naturally funny, but if you, there's some people that imitate cadences, it's funny that different parts of the country, when I was doing it, like in the people from the Pittsburgh, a lot of them sounded like Dennis Miller, the San Francisco, Boston people had a a style, New York was a very Seinfeld-ish, so, in the comedy boom, there were a lot of people making a living that weren't that good, but there was there was more. My friend who's smart uh, explained what happened. The baby boomers got older and there was disco died out and they needed entertainment places to go, the influx of baby boomers. So there was all these people needing entertainment. So comedy clubs and kind of filled that and there were more gigs and there were comics for a while really yes it was it wasn't like it is in the beginning of the comedy boom of the 80s and then comedy sort of exploded but there was there was more need if you were a comedian all you had to do is like pick up the phone and even you just had to be competent so a lot of them made a marginal living that were very mediocre um, in my day because it was the comedy boom just started in the 80s.
1: Anybody could just do it, you know, that had well, some sort a of a lot voice. of people that
0: you would meet at the improv would be the place you'd meet and three comics and a lot of them were really bad. But if you had a car, you'd get gigs because you could drive the other two comics to the places in Jersey and Long Island. <laughs> so, yes, there and, and that was in the San Francisco scene of. Uh, the 80s, there were more gigs and there were comics, they were in demand and, until it got crazy and the comedy boom sort of, it sort of died out with I remember you when I moved to LA, you could make a marginal living just doing Evening at the Improv, Comic Strip Live, all these uh, Rosie O'Donnell at VH1, uh, Caroline's comedy show, so there were such an influx of cable shows where it watered down being on The Tonight Show and stuff. So kind of that, the 90s, there was just too many comedians on TV and that kind of made the first comedy boom die down.
1: Yeah, I remember that growing up, my parents watched a lot of those and there were, my goodness, this is before obviously Netflix and Comedy yes. Central, which Netflix now seems to be the new, so to speak, Comedy Central. And there was like all these avenues, but people were just going up. I remember like it was just comedian after comedian after comedian. Yep, Evening
0: at the Improv was on five nights a week on A&E for a while. and really warded down comics and a lot of stuff. Yes.
1: Unbelievable. Just to hear those stories of that time frame where, you know, there was so many avenues for people to kind of get to where they wanted to get. And I've heard other comedians and actors like yourself talk about, you know, when they would go up, they would find themselves doing the Seinfeld or the Dennis Miller, you know, or the Louis Black, kind of those weird pitches and cadences like you described. And they had to pull themselves back and go, wait a second. Or ironically, they would be performing and that person would be in the crowd and they didn't know that they were in the crowd and they would pull them aside as a young, uninformed performer and go, Hey, you know, even to the degree, maybe of even joke, not joke stealing, but kind of just repeating what they heard on a record player or something like that.
0: A lot influenced by Robert Klein. Yes.
1: Love it. Love it. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit because you are a writer as well and you have written a lot of different things. You've written a few books, you've written a few scripts When you sit down to write either a joke or a script or anything like that in the comedy vein, what is your process to get into that mindset to write something? Like, let's take the Seinfeld scripts just as an example. I know you've talked about it a lot or anything in general, maybe something less known. Like, what do you do to get into that space?
0: Well, it's it's weird. A lot of, when I did stand up, my best jokes kind of hit me or said to me or from my life. I I don't think I'd be g- good as like a topical joke writer on the Tonight Show. I I'm not good at uh, you know. I mean, I never wanted to, or it would be just a job. But I'm not good at. I just guess I have my voice. I'm I'm not that good at. I don't think I could write a rom com. Um, you know, or a, or an episode of King of Queens, so good. But you know well writing on Seinfeld, you kind of have the template, you know, Harry David created it. So I would just pitch ideas for my life. you know, like I said, things that happened to me were very Seinfeldish, some of them. So you know, when I wrote my, you know, yeah, so I try to be more imaginative, but it's just more comfortable writing an exaggeration of what I have in memoirs, what happened to me, or just recalling crazy stuff in my voice.
1: At what point in your career did you finally find your voice? Because I hear that term a lot from comedians and actors in finding (coughs) your voice. Was it early on? Was it later on? I
0: think, you know, one of the things I did, I didn't really watch too many comics. I didn't want to be too influenced. I, you know, I, I, when I in stand up, at first it came like I said, accidentally. I'd have my head sure. down and look at the audience, and I, I would just make nooses with the mic stand and do weird, morbid one liners. But then when you'd go on the road, it got watered down a bit because, you know, you have to, you can't just go into your act. You've got to acknowledge what city you're in and do an hour and stretch out the material. So it's weird because like, I, I found my voice, I thought early on, but then I, I got to a point where I didn't want to, and sometimes was doing an imitation of myself where I, I was going, oh, am I watering it down? Am I allowed to look at the crowd? Can I smile? <laughs> Can I talk to someone? So I got kind of stuck for a while in what I thought the persona is I created. You know, like there's some people, I don't want to name names. There's one guy, it's almost like he does a spastic, almost Bobcat thing. So then I struggled for a while where, and I also had like paranoia, like I was so unique at first. People were telling me, oh, what if someone comes along just like me? And I'd get very nervous oh Stephen Wright's like you or this guy's like you and you want you don't want to be a clone of someone else so I almost envied people who were just regular funny personal people I didn't have the fear that their style or act would get ripped off I remember in London I had to follow Emo Phillips and I bombed because they look like who is another American doing a poor man's version of that guy (laughs) so I so I first found my voice but then I grew up as a person and I wasn't that guy anymore. So I had to come out a little bit. And one thing acting class helped in New York was it gave me confidence I could be funny and likable without the weird one-liners, without being this weird guy who can't look at the audience. And then I kind of found my persona in sitcoms, but I probably typecast myself where just the weird guy and, you know, a lot of one-dimensional parts of... I'm nervous, this and that. So I'm not living a luxury lifestyle. And but it it just I had little grooves. I mean, I kind of, you know, again, got shut out a little bit when comedy became cool and UCB and the office and they're brooding like cool clicks of people. But, you know, I, I didn't I never hit the big home run, but sort of someone's people like, you know, and I appreciate it.
1: It means the world to me. And to be able to sit down and talk to you for just a few minutes about that, I think is very informative and that sort of thing. Just as we wrap up here over the years, you've had a lot of what I would consider and a lot of my audience would consider career defining moments. At what point did you go, OK, I've made it? So I, I don't know if
0: I have. It's funny because, you know, um, <sighs> you know, I'll still have to get talked into some audition I don't get. And, you know, I mean, in a perfect world, I I would get fun parts without auditioning. And I did have a groove for a while, but then I, you know, but then I go, I would like to be like a Chris Elliott where he doesn't audition. You know who he is and you put him in a thing. So I guess I never really had that feeling. I made it because I'm still like getting talked into cattle call auditions with dozens of people. So I think, you know, it's weird. It's like, I, for a while, you know, doing TikTok Live once in a while, a new thing. And it's very sweet that I'm part of people's childhoods. And I didn't realize that. Like they grew up watching, you know, those Wizards of Waverly Place or animation. And uh, so, you know, then I changed perspective. Like, you know, if I was a kid and I saw Fred Stoller on TV, even though he's not famous, I go. I I like that guy because I'm. I'd relate to me if I was me. So again, people ask, "What was your big break?" There was not one thing like. All right. So it's just a thing like, if I step back and stop having my mother's critical voice in my head, go. Okay, I did some stuff, but there wasn't a time where I went. Yeah, I guess because I I shouldn't judge myself like I said the Chris Elliott way. Like he made it, and now he's like. They want him or not, and they, they give him offers. He doesn't have to audition. So if, if I take auditioning out of my, the equation, then I go, okay. But I hate when I'm roped into something. And <laughs> I mean, Dom Herrera uh, says it well. He goes, he doesn't audition. When he auditions, it's like someone else is his boss. And sure. so I'm, I think uh, I'm getting a better perspective of it. Thanks to people like you who are appreciative.
1: Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun. And just looking back, there's a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, these iconic moments where people know you from, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's, you, know, you are definitely the people's champ as far as what we see when we watch you on TV or get your comedy and that sort of thing. You, As we wrap up here, one last question. You have a lot of things that you do offer for people to connect with you whether it's acting classes or joke punch-ups or you listen to people's jokes. If people want to maybe take advantage of some of these classes uh, that you offer, Fred, how can they do that? Go to my
0: Instagram or my, you know, there's a thing, there's just a tree link where I do uh, people buy uh, Seinfeld scripts or Zoom things or just like that. And I'm on Cameo. Those are fun to do. That's an app where you do shout outs. So just, uh, yeah, uh, uh, someone ordered a Dumb and Dumber photo to get off the phone photo. So, uh, yeah, there's an app called Jemi. I'm on Fred Stoller Gemini, where it's a little store and, you know, photos and stuff.
1: Wonderful. Well, Fred, thank you so much for your time and for being a part of this podcast today. I really do appreciate it.
0: And keep me posted. And I got I got more of this than you do. It really lifted me up. I appreciate it
1: so much. Thank you very much.